I'm Alex Semenzato, and this is the SEMO Podcast. This episode is presented by Elo, the Creators Network. Elo is a global community of artists dedicated to creative excellence, built by artists for artists. If you're a creator and you want to create a profile and collaborate with your peers, or you just love art and creativity and you want to check out some of the incredible works from all over the world, you can now by heading to elo.co. What's up, everyone? How are you? I hope you're having an excellent day and an even better week, whatever you've been up to. In this week's episode, we speak to Jonas Altman, who helps people do their best work. As the founder of award-winning design practice Social Fabric, Jonas creates learning experiences that transform people so they can elevate how they organize, collaborate, and innovate. Over the years, Jonas has created fashion brands, ran a digital agency, launched London's first lifestyle technology incubator, and now advises on culture change to some of the world's boldest organizations. Jonas is an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia's Souder School of Business, and in his spare time, he enjoys surfing, riding the waves to unwind. In this episode, we speak to Jonas about his new best-selling book titled Shapers, Reinvent the Way You Work. And more than ever before, we are working in places, ways, and on things that were once the stuff of science fiction. Yet the reality is that most professionals are unhappy in their work. Whether you want to reset your career, strike out on your own, or just ignite more joy in what you do, Shapers shows you the way. In this episode, we also discuss other topics such as designing your role, how to get into your flow state, what post-COVID-19 workplaces look like and how the digital transformation is going to affect everyone in the workplace. Education and finding your ikigai, polymath and slashies, biophilia and the human connection to nature, and the Pomodoro technique. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Hi Jonas, how are you? I'm well, Alex. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm good, thanks. Where are you calling from today? My living room sofa in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. Lovely. Is it? Is it got? Is it got snow yet? Is it cold? It's ugly. It's basically <laughs> like London on its normal days. It's actually pretty much the same. Uh, I never know if it's a longitude or latitude, but we're at the same level as yeah. as the UK as London. But it rains pretty hard, and when it rains really hard, you kind of you're kind of like, can I not go outside today? Yeah. And then you go outside for a bit, but um, when it's sunny and the sun comes out and it's crisp and cold, it's, it's stunning. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time with me today. It's great to have you back on the, the SEMO podcast podcast. And um, we're now going live on series two, but we did actually have you in one of the first uh, few episodes of series one. So um you know, you're such a great guest. We had to invite you back, but also more importantly, uh, which we'll discuss about today, you are now a fully fledged author, which is very exciting. So I don't know if I have to call you sir or Jonas uh, or whatever, what, if that means anything. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you called me sir, I would probably have to get stripped of it at some point. <laughs> um, 
Uh, I think you should just call me Jonas because okay. then, you know, whether you write a book or make a movie or, or uh, run a rave or a event, I, I don't think it changes who you are as a person. Awesome. Well, we'll get all into that. Uh, but as always, we love to start with some icebreakers. So shall we get started? Oh, yeah, let's do it. All right. Favorite color? Blue. Coffee? No. Or- Green. Green's my favorite color. No, you can't say green. You're literally the fifth person on this podcast. That's I, no, I just weird. I think blue was like induced on me as a kid. <laughs> and like that the bathroom was blue and like that's a boy's color. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm gonna go with green. Okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. If you could bring back any fashion trend, what would it be? MC Hammer shit catcher pants. Awesome answer. What is your favorite item you've purchased this year? Well, that's a hard one. I'm going to say this. This is a record by Lee Moses, who was basically kind of like a Shuggy Otis. He was the uh, sort of bassist and songwriter and multi-instrumentalist for Jimi Hendrix and tons of people that we know and love, but just spaded away. And it got reissued. And there's a song on here called Hey Joe, which is a big Jimi Hendrix song. So this was like one of the COVID albums that kind of kept me sane. Nice. Thank you for sharing. How do you like your eggs? I want to say sunny side up, but usually it's scrambled. What's your most used emoji? Prayer. Second is the hands. Like, what (laughs) up? Amazing. And lastly, a quick fun fact about you. I think last time we talked about breakdancing, so I can't use that one. Yeah, that's true. Okay, here's one. This is another kind of boastful one. I am or was the fastest Jew in Vancouver, meaning that I could run the 100-meter dash under 11 seconds. Wow. And then when I went to race other people in other cities in Canada, I realized that I was a fat bastard, and actually I was slow compared to non-Jews. Right. <laughs> okay. I don't know about Jews and Christians, but like, like the, the interreligion 100 meter sprint, it was like a well, whole. <laughs> well, the Jews go to the Mac- Maccabee games in Tel Aviv uh, in Israel. Right. So, you know, and there's a couple of Jewish athletes in baseball and in NFL. But generally, in terms of DNA and uh, muscle, it, a lot of Jews are not uh, necessarily built for being a linebacker. Right. Okay. Cool. I mean, that's, that, that's a good fun fact. Thank yeah. you. So welcome back to the SEMA podcast. Uh, it's great to have you on again. Um, you know, can call you a friend as well as, as a mentor over the years. We've known each other. I think it's incredible to now see you have a, a, like a real book. I'm, I'm holding it here. We can see Shapers. Um, but before we get into that, I think it would be great just for the audience. You know, how, how would you describe yourself and what you do? Mm. I mean, my favorite current way to describe myself is a curious curious human that's quite vague and i kind of think that most people are by default what i do is i help people navigate the world of work or their world of work and that happens at uh individual level with one-to-one coaching it happens at an organizational or team level with group coaching and maybe looking at the way that companies sail their ship and uh, how I've approached that is by testing out my um, 
beliefs and biases through writing, workshops, and conversations to try and stay relevant and to stay current. Um, and this year has been a sort of cracking open of all of the things that have been uh, sort of um, promised of more freedom and more fulfillment in your work. So I'm quite excited about that. And then it's a little bit daunting that it all happened at the snap of a finger. Absolutely. And in terms of your journey, I mean, for those of you that listened to, to, to Jonas's first episode, I would ask people to go and listen to that. But to give context whilst we're here, um, kind of just some of the key highlights and the learnings that have shaped you to ultimately write Shapers. Just give us that context. Oh, sure. I think. Yeah. Well, the first thing which resonates with a lot of people is not conforming to what a job wants you to be, but understanding yourself and then seeing work as a practice and a sort of series of, or a tour of duty or um, a series of stints and gigs and projects and jobs, which has become more and more commonplace. So that's the first, and that's for people who kind of maybe don't have a single kind of myopic focus of what they're going to do, become a fire person or a nurse or, or, or a lawyer or a doctor. Even those types of jobs and roles, I think, do allow for a lot of shaping and, and creativity. So the, that, that first part is I never decided what I wanted to be when I grew up. And writing that book was a sort of way of discovery of that's okay. So that's um, the main thing. And then I'd say finding out more about the things that you don't want to do because you've tried them. So I'd worked in nonprofits. I've worked with think tanks. I've worked in the fashion industry, in the music industry. And as much as I love parts of those, they weren't really my jam. So I was a little bit unreasonable. I am unreasonable in trying to find work that lights me up. And so Shapers is more of a chronicle of people who have been um, also unreasonable and demanding a lot from what it is they do. And you're one of those people. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I, it really resonates with me, the book. And um, yeah, I think, I think for me, yeah, I mean, obviously I've had discussions with you over coffees and things, and it's been great to kind of, you know, see a lot of that come to fruition in physical form now with the book. But um yeah, it's so cool, man. It's so cool to, to feel and hold. Um, where did the artwork come from? Instagram. I found this dude who's a tattoo artist. His name's Luis. He's in Sao Paulo. And his artwork was like very surreal. It reminded me of like kind of Dolly meets someone else. I can't really think about who the other person might be. Um, and so I hit him up and I was like, um, I'm writing a book and I'd love for you to do the illustrations inside illustrations for each, each sort of section. And he was like, cool, let's do it. So we did that. And then when I was doing the artwork for the book and the publisher came up with their designs, I almost vomited. And I was like, this is, this is totally off. So I said, would you be okay if Louise did the artwork? So we took some of the ideas of illustrations in the book to come out with something that could sort of capture the the shaper sentiment and did he so did the cover um artwork but then also those illustrations are like different chapters right the, the black and white imagery yeah that's all him that's super cool i love it um at the start of the book in the in the intro we learn about manny does he exist is he a real guy manny is a real dude he is <laughs> magical 
he I don't even know if he's real. He might be like some, you know, he might on his fifth or sixth life uh, incarnated as, you know, many other species. And um, I actually didn't have Manny in mind. I had someone else in mind that I was going to use as the intro. And it didn't really fit. It, it was sort of felt contrived. And then I was, it was like one of those times when you're not working, like you're hanging out with your friends or you're walking or running or something. And it dawned on me that of all the people I know in my life and have met, he embodies one, the kind of person who doesn't give up and always is willing to try for fear of not trying. And later in life is when he found his groove, which happened to be shaping surfboards. So it, it kind of just made sense. And then I called him up and I said, Hey, I'd like to write about you for my book. And he was like, fuck no, like not, no way. And it took a lot of cajoling to get him to agree. And I only had two sort of interviews with him. And then I wrote everything about it. And then when I sent in the book, he said him and his wife were cracking up because it's everything is true, but it has my way of telling the story, which is um, like amplifying how he eats tacos. Like he doesn't eat tacos like that, but you know, <laughs> I was trying to make a point. Awesome. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the process of putting pen to paper? So, you know, you're someone that really has studied kind of the future ways of working. It's something that you do part of your practice with, with social fabric, as you mentioned, um, you know, kind of hosting workshops and teachings. I mean, over the years, were you journaling or keeping notes of all the people you came across? You know, how, tell us a bit more about that journey uh, to actually putting pen to paper and that process of actually building out the book. Sure. Great question. You know, there's, there's tools that people have. I think a lot of people's tools are a moleskin and a Muji pen, either a 0. 0.5 or a 0. 0.38 or 0. 0.7, whatever your tools are, which are supposedly going to stack your triggers so you can get into a flow state or induce creativity. I didn't really think about that very much until probably till I hit 30 and I was sort of spinning my wheels you know, running around London, selling stuff, knocking on doors. So my tools were really about the gift of the gab and just being able to like talk and, and sell. But writing is a different process. You, you write to think and you get clear on actually what you want to say. So instead of talking and kind of hoping that something novel comes out, you, you, you know, you kind of, te um, you stress test it by getting it on paper and so forth. So um, part of the process is deliberate practice and getting sitting your bum in the chair every day. Part of it is knowing yourself and knowing, you know, when and where and how you're going to do your best work. And the process of writing can be agony, but it's extremely rewarding if that's your bag. So I started blogging or writing um, on social fabric in 2005. And I was doing it more for me. And then I had a friend named Allison who was like, I really liked that article you wrote about marijuana and running or something like that. And I was like, really? I was like, you read that? Cause I thought my, I thought only my mom read it. And I think it was just like a few people that said, you know, you said what I was thinking, or I actually don't agree with you. This is something I've been thinking about. And it was a really way to check your ego and challenge your assumptions. And I really have a lot of respect for people who can write fiction, but I've kind of used writing as a tool to get clear on my thinking so that when I teach or coach, 
I'm kind of a little bit more grounded in what I'm saying. And does um, kind of the experiences that you have, I mean, do they fuel kind of the workshops and the things that you teach or do you kind of one one formula for everything or is it, are you kind of evolving that practice as you grow on your own journey? I see you prepared, my friend. You know, I, I had a year where I was kind of like, I'm going to say no to everything that isn't what I want to do, which is very eccentric. And I think that was probably my worst year financially. And then I had a year that I'll say yes to everything, regardless of what it is. And it was probably my best year financially. But I'm not really motivated so much about commercial success as I think impact and the two can coexist. So my new kind of view on that is what does the market need? So as soon as COVID hit, it was like, we need remote team training and resiliency building. So Victoria and I and a few other people, we did a lot of um, resiliency type things of like, you don't have to wait for a trauma to become resilient. You can build resiliency as a muscle. So that's responsive to what the market needs. But then I'm really interested in say, flow and your circadian rhythms and how to find when Alex is at his best. And I've always been interested in that or been interested in that for five, six years. So I'm going to keep with that and then hope that the market wants that. So I think it's a market sensitivity matching what it is that's inside of you. And when those marry, it's a beautiful thing. Whereas some points in my career, I've been too caught up in my own little stories. And in other points, I've been way too responsive to what the world wants and changing my tack and my strategy all the time without really getting clear on what it is I do and why. It's interesting, you know, obviously the big elephant in the room is COVID. Um, you know, when this book came out, it, it almost, you know, when I read it recently, it, it didn't seem to be out of place during COVID. You know, I think a lot of the stuff that you write about, I feel still applies uh, because I think, you know, although we're, we're remote working, if anything, finding that deep work or that that truth and that flow is people are more aware of it than ever. I mean, me personally, I mean, I, I honestly have not been, I've been so productive during COVID, like just being able to not be distracted and kind of get into my flow and be in my room and, you know, it can't, can't be lonely at times, but I think it's it's been interesting. I mean, were you a bit kind of like, oh shit, COVID's happened, is the book relevant? Or were you actually pleasantly surprised that it does resonate well, even though COVID's here? Well, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tackle that question after I say, originally, as COVID hit, there was a, an impulse or maybe a felt sense that people wanted to be more productive. So it was, how do I double down on being more creative, productive, innovative, collaborative? And I became like one of the guys that people were coming to, to train teams. And I was like fully in it. I'm like, you know, all of my delivery was being done remote. And any of it was done with people in the office were now in their bedrooms or bathrooms or kitchens. And it was kind of novel and fun and awkward. And then that kind of subsided. So I look at it as like that was the sprint. And then we realized it was a marathon. And in terms of the book, uh, almost all of it has been kept exactly the same. And my editor told me, do not start to write about COVID or change it because I hadn't actually gone to print. Um, until I think mid-May or like even maybe June. So I had time to go back and be like, okay. And there's just a few little things that were changed, but otherwise more autonomy, more control over your work, 
remote work and uh, great work being able to happen anywhere as a default, like WordPress and many other companies. Leadership changing to be more emotional, more empathetic, more caring, and the individual having the freedom or the ability to start searching for meaning as a sort of new, relatively new endeavor. That was already the theme of the book four years ago when I started writing it when I was in Asia. So I was like, I'm not going to just change it. It happens to be that 30 or 40% of the American economy or global economy are independent workers now or have more than one employer. And that fact alone means that you have more ability to shape your work and life. Absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, a lot about what's in the book, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of books out there that talk about work and things like that. But I think what makes Shapers stand out for me is that it it is quite down to earth and it tells it how it is backed up by industry leaders that you kind of, you know, quote and, and relate to. So I quite like it in that regard. Um, but I also think it, it kind of, you know, talks about slashies and, 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 and then another, you know, these types of people as a shaper. And I think ultimately, you know, who you're talking to, which you, which you preface at the start of the book, um, are the shaper type people. And I think if anything, it's been quite, although it's been challenging COVID, it has been interesting because I think you've been able to shape your own day. You've been able to you know, create an optimum optimum schedule for yourself, you know, whether that's a remote walk during lunch or when you exercise or whatever, you have the freedom to do that. So I think, yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, there are, as much as that's true, there are people who have a program of eating their lunch at their desk. Yeah. And so some, a practice like that or a habit like that becomes, um, it could be become silly or it could become, kind of um, more acute for the person of like, why do I do this? Like, could I just hop off the computer and, and go grab some food or, you know, stop working for 20 or 30 minutes and, and eat mindfully? Or alternatively, you actually are so busy that you just forget to eat and you're working so, so much in, the, in flow and you, you find a different way of operating because you're not in an office. But it's not been... It's like uh, William Gibson said, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. COVID has not been equal for everyone. Everyone's experienced it in very, very different ways. No, absolutely. Um, no, that couldn't be more true. I was going to say as well, like, I think what's been interesting, a lot of books and a, and a lot of the sentiment in this book, um, I, I don't know, I think almost this year, it's like the digital transformation that's been a catalyst of COVID has been exciting and crazy and like, holy shit, there we go. This could have all been done (laughs) if people just put their minds to it within a year. And it's like, I've seen these funny memes. It's like, you know, tick the box who, who, uh, who is to, to like celebrate for, you know, driving digital transformation, like a CTO, B CEO, C COVID-19. And like, it's just crazy how, you know, why wasn't it the norm for, you know, to have QR code menus? Like, why wasn't it the norm to have all these different things that are now norm because of COVID? So, I mean, it has been a horrible experience for many, but I think in terms of some of the efficiencies and kind of the forced action that's had to be taken by some of these huge companies, I think that's positive change, which has been interesting. I wholly agree. Yeah. Um, in terms of the cycle of innovation... I love that. <laughs> and something that I, I think, I don't know if I've spoken it with you before, but 
you know, you talk about it in the book, this, this cycle of innovation and, and the different, uh, you know, the, 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 the after effects of kind of these industrial revolutions and stuff, that diagram I, I, th- I thought was really cool in the book. My question is like, do you think we're going to get to a place where we, we innovate, we innovate, and then it just comes to a point where human, humans just cannot innovate anymore? Well, then we die. Right. Uh, I mean, there's a woman I spoke to who's amazing, uh, Joyce Bromberg, who worked at Steelcase for 28 years and then Convene, which is like we work, we work on steroids. And now she's running her own firm. She'll never retire. She's in her 70s. And she's like, I was like, what are you excited about? She's like, well, Moore's law has come to an end and quantum physics and quantum computing are here. Yeah. And we've just gotten started. And like the way she said it, and her uh, humility, I'm like, shit. Like, I'm like, I'm just getting okay with, you know, the, the resistance that you just uh, alluded to being kind of um, dissipating and, and Zoom and Trello and Asana and remote working tools becoming the norm, mixed reality, augmented reality, QR codes. But this is all like laughing uh, material compared to what's ahead. Um, blurred reality, uh, sex robots, um, AI, intelligent AI, like the movie Her, going down that road and even to approach singularity is for me the worry of getting, uh, losing our humanity. But at the same side is like, what is inhuman and what is unnatural? Like if we create um, a tech patch for us and you opt in it, could we not say it's somewhat similar to a vaccine? Take it, don't take it, it's your choice. You take it, you might have some side effects like blurred vision but you might have some awesomeness, like being able to talk to Alex without speaking. You know, like for example, like traveling, like right now you have to go on Google or go on Duolingo to like learn how to speak Spanish or Portuguese. There's smart glasses and earbuds that will in effect allow you to speak the language or allow you to speak and have it come out to that person with their headphones in their native tongue. Does that make us more able to connect or does that actually make it more awkward? Cause you know that the software is, is operating and it's not you choosing the words. So like I'm, uh, I'm saying, I don't think we're ever going to stop innovating. And if we do, we'll die yet. I believe, and back to Carlota, Carlota Perez's diagram in the book, we might be in the golden age. We might be in the sort of dot-com bubble and bust 20 years ago, where we now start innovating on the innovations after COVID and things are going to get like absolutely insane in the coming years. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was trying to work out from that diagram. I was like, when, when is the golden era after? We're supposed to be in it. 2020s. Oh, is it now? Yeah. The next five Every 50 years. So the microchip like ARPANET was 1968 was like the invention of like, I can send an email to another university and someone else will receive it. And so we're at 50 years since like kind of the first electronic communication was sent. Uh, and if you think about electronic communication itself, it's pretty fucking amazing. Like yeah. email sucks for most people, including myself, but it's awesome. So there's lots of really interesting topics in the book. You go on a good journey. I like how kind of part one is about the history of work and providing us context and slap us in the face with what we should be doing and how we should be thinking and some really good insight. Um, out of all the different topics you discuss, I mean, what's the feedback been from the book? And could you tell us some of the, the kind of the key topics that you think have resonated the most with your readers? Sure thing. 
I think there's definitely something around the invitation. There's definitely something around exploration. And there's definitely something around leadership. So the invitation is, and we can use COVID as a lens, an existential itch or an existential opening, or as a friend calls it, the niggle that's like, why do I do what I do? Is there something else? What am I put on this planet to do? How do I do it well? How can I make an impact? And all sorts of questions that have sort of been in the background that have come to the foreground. And so that's a beautiful thing. It's also disorientating and it can be overwhelming. That leads to an exploration of how do I turn my passions into my job? Should I turn my passions into what I do for work or should I keep them as a side hustle or as a hobby? And then that, that leads to like, what gives you energy? How do you get lit up? How do you kind of become a shaper if that's something that you're contemplating or, or willing to um, double down on. And then what we're seeing in organizations is the practice of self-management as a, as a meta idea is not an old one. And it really is about treating people like adults and treating humans as capable, whole and resourceful people. That's a lot of people there. So when you have leadership like, uh, which is why style leadership, which is much more about hands off and looking at workers as how do I enable you to do your best work? How can I support you? You're seeing those are the companies that are innovating. Those are the companies that are learning organizations and deliberately developmental. So those come together as like, whether you're an independent worker, entrepreneur, or whether you're an entrepreneur or working for a company, there's an invitation to, to explore uh, what it is you're going to spend mo uh, most of your waking life doing. And then the environment, both the space, the technology you use, and the, the leadership and the humans that you interact with to cater to that. And that marriage, I think, is very potent because without those coming together, you kind of have all this excitement and all this enthusiasm, but you get, it gets sort of quashed in the workplace, or you don't really know what you're here for to do and you're in a great environment, but it's not really your jam and you're just tolerating it or you're just sort of going through the motions and COVID has exposed that and, and invited us to say, maybe there's a different way. A lot of the people that you speak with, I mean, cause I think for lots of people that might be listening to this, that may not be in a position of power uh, or, you know, they just work at a business where, the sorts of things you discuss in the book are just not on the agenda. What would you advise to them? Mm. Well, that's the thing that has resonated a lot, which I didn't really allude to, which is, is there such a thing as work-life balance? Because now it's just a shit show. It's a work-life integration. And is there such a thing as job crafting, which has been around for 20 or 30 years, pioneered by the Harvard Business School? Um, and Amy Emmonson. And I, I believe that job crafting is very powerful if done correctly. And probably a modern day term that's more sexy is role design. So if we're going to design your role in your organization, you have control over the tasks, what it is you do. Like you have some control over it. You have to do your tasks, but you might be able to like volunteer and do some events. 
or get up early and write a blog post. So that's your work. Your relationships and how you navigate that is very much like the relationships we have in our life. Which people challenge you and make you better? Which people annoy you and trigger you? And it's up to you to figure out how to navigate that. Which people can you manage up with? Which people are your mentors? So that's looking at your, your relationships, which is a, which is a huge uh, study. And Adam Grant, who's you know a pioneer in that world, says that having a best friend or someone that's a confidant at work is one of the main motivators of being excited about your work. So how do you do that now with no office? And then the third one is your mindset. Like, how do you actually think about yourself and yourself in your work? And you have control over that. So one answer is you're in the wrong company. One answer is you're in the wrong department, but at the right company. One answer is you're just going to do a cut and paste job and take the same problems to the next organization if you leave and think that that's going to solve. Or, and I sometimes I'm waving the flag, come over here. It's a lot of fun, but it's not for everyone, which is, you know, the personalization and the variety that being your own boss allows can be overwhelming. You need a lot of discipline um, and it's not necessarily the right way for everyone, but it is becoming increasingly popular. Yeah. Are you rubbing shoulders with like the HR department, the chief operating officers, the chief people officers, these types of people? I mean, are they looking at your book and going, we want, we need a bit of Jonas to help reinvigorate our, our culture and team? The answer is yes, with the caveat, a grain of salt. Because, you know, there's that great saying, if a chief financial officer invests in their people and they leave, that's... Uh, you know, that sucks. If they don't invest in their people, if they invest in their people and they stay, that's a great thing. I kind of botched that. But the idea is if you're really a a great head of people and culture or HR manager, you're willing to say, if this person's going to leave, they're going to leave anyway. And having a workshop with a, um, with Jonas or someone else who's going to challenge your team to show up as their best selves and do their best work. If it's not meant to be at their organization, then they're really still going to benefit of getting um, a, com- a committed person for the time that they're, for the tenure that they they're there for. So instead of operating out of fear, you're saying, you know, like kind of what LinkedIn, like what's your plans after LinkedIn in the job interview? I, I, so those kind of companies, a lot of them are nonprofit, a lot of them are tech led, and a lot of them are progressive in the way that they look at hu- as humans as assets to be set free and not as um, resources to be managed. You talk about leadership in your book, my question is, there's like different categories that you describe. Teacher, learner, mobilizer, giver, and coach. When I was reading that chapter, I wondered, can someone be all of the above? Oh, 100%. In fact, if you had a fedora and a baseball cap and a do-rag and a bandana or whatever your hats are, you are really needing to know what's needed when, and sometimes there'll be a hybrid. So um, the mobilizer of knowing that you can push people and knowing that what's needed now is to kind of uh, empower people to, to be them best selves, be them best selves, and maybe even, you know, really get into that uncomfortable zone could also be married very well with coaching of, you know, something like what's stopping you from launching the podcast or something or whatever it is. And so when I was writing about that, you know, 
the giver is again, back to Adam Grant of give and take is uh, leaders that win are looking at, at the company as um, uh, existing without them and much more of the marathon. So they're, they're starting with the give instead of the take of how can I progress as quickly as possible to the C-suite. So the answer is yes. And actually that's not an exhaustive list. There's probably at least another dozen or so different types of personas or archetypes that you can adopt. And in terms of male energy and female energy, female energy are arguably is more transparent, more collaborative, more social, more empathetic. Male energy is much more confident, more ego-driven, more assured. And they are in tension, but they also can be married and dance very well together. And I hate to say it, but Jeff Bezos embodies both of those energies in a way that is probably not seen uh, in a lot of individuals. Elon Musk, probably much more, I mean, they're both men, but a lot less of the different style leadership. And to articulate that, when Bezos funded Amazon Fire, the phone that flopped, billions of dollars lost which is like nothing. That's like, you know, it's like, oops, like I made that yesterday. Um, he, he turned that into Alexa because it came up with voice recognition. And, you know, so it's a lot of like um, allowing the dance between giving people autonomy and supporting them, but also saying like, here's the business objective. And that's rare. There's a lot of great sound bites or whatever you want to call it, snippets or quotes from industry leaders that you feature in the book. Um, are there any stories or insight that aren't featured that maybe you could share with us that you were so taken aback by when you were talking to some of these people? I remember meeting Matt Mullenweg before Uber launched in London and we were at a conference or like a, I don't know, one of those unnecessary, eccentric, elaborate meetups. I don't know what it was. Uh, and he looked like, and then, you know, just a dude in a t-shirt. And I said, I was like, man, I love WordPress. And he was like, thanks, man. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, and then he opened up his uh, phone and he had basically been given a pilot for Uber. Like Uber hadn't launched yet. So he was, he was basically piloting it as like a beta tester. And I was like, what do you, he's like, yeah, I've been booking this car thing. It's like an app for, to basically call a taxi. And I was like, oh, that, and I had no idea. Like I couldn't even uh, foresee that it would redefine how cities operate, you know? And his soundbite, which I don't think he said then, but he said it many times since there. And he's been saying it since the beginning is great work happens anywhere. And I've followed up with him several times and he's doubled down on that by meaning Okay, there are people who have to go to a factory or to a restaurant or to a hospital. Yet in our modern age of technology and distribution, because WordPress is fully distributed, why would you make people go somewhere where they don't want to go? So it's kind of looking at, you know, pre-COVID world. He was already post-COVID, you know, decades before. And that's why WordPress pilots uh, 36 to 37% of the web. So he's one. There's a fellow in, in Toronto who I interviewed and he's in the book. And I did another interview with him recently named Edward Jansen, who has pioneered self-management uh, in his company. And what I love about him is he was doing really well. He was like getting paid tons of money. He was uh, head of marketing at a tech company that had like a lot of security, but he had that niggle. He was like, there's something off. Like I'm finishing the day and I'm just, 
I'm not energized, I'm depleted. And so he spent a long time trying to figure out what his, how he, how he was going to become a shaper. And he came across uh, Frederick Lelou's Reinventing Organizations, which talks about teal organizations that don't have, most of them don't have bosses or ineffective management. So long story short, he became um, a C-suite guy in a bossless company, which was very challenging to himself because he was known for that assurance, that male energy. And now he had to adopt a lot of this sort of, there is no boss, what do you think? And much more inclusive. And that's been so successful at that company called Fitzy, which is an HR software company, that he's now bringing that practice to the holdings company to thousands of people as the sort of self-management guy, because he's, he's living proof, walking the walk. And just speaking to him, and he's exactly my age, and he went to school with one of my buddies, and I'm just like, you're that, you're, you're, you're batshit crazy. And he's like, I know. And so that's intoxicating. Yeah. And you're like, you, you just feel good that there's guys like him and women like him out there in the world. Absolutely. And being like unapologetic about your flow, what you're doing, right? Yeah. So a big thing that I want more of now, maybe this is a selfish question, but um, okay, I'm a shaper. Now, how can I harness being a shaper, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know whether or not this is going to be the sequel or, uh, or what, but I, I think you get a lot of books that tell you what to do, why, things like that. I, I love kind of the, the anecdotes and, and the context and kind of the down-to-earthness of your book. Um, but honestly, like some of it, so much of it resonates with me. I now kind of want to know, okay, I, I think I, I am a shaper. How can I maximize? being a shaper, tell me, help me, guide me, what's the structure? You know what I mean? Yeah. I wish there was a succinct answer to that. <laughs> when people ask, like, how do you find your niche, your groove, your flow, your creative currency? My default answer was you try a lot of things. Mm -hmm. You experiment, you learn, you fail, you kind of cobble together and I think that's because that's what I did, but I don't think that that's necessary. I think there's a lot more room for deliberation and being more discerning with how you expend your energy. And, you know, Brene Brown has a great sort of podcast where she's talking about her daughter and she says her daughter finally found out at university at the age of like 25, 26, what she doesn't want to do. And she was really worried and she was crying. And Brene is like, that's good. Like, that's good to not want to do that. Now you can just knock that off your list. And that's like maybe about a generation that's been shaped by digital technology and the possibility of launching a Shopify account overnight or a Substack newsletter and making 100K just by writing, um, you know, going on Mixcloud and uploading one of your tracks. It's very alluring, but it requires grit and grace and discipline and a support network and resilience and a lot of things that would be considered the entrepreneurial mindset or the entrepreneurial qualities. So my short answer is once you have come on board and you're on that journey of seeing work as a practice, in fact, the hard work has just begun and cultivating and maintaining and sustaining a shaper lifestyle, including what I'm doing is not for the faint hearted. Yeah. 
no, I agree. But I still, maybe we co-write the next book then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Moving on, what are you curious about? Oh, I'm curious about a lot of things. You know, for a long time, I kind of thought of personal development and self-help as separate from professional development and training. I don't know why. They're totally integrated and they're, in effect, you know, um, something you cannot separate. So as much as it might sound woo-woo, I'm very interested in psychology, the technology of mind, therapy, coaching, and growing leaders and growing people to step into conflict and awkwardness and uncomfortability, which I'm still not sure if that's a word or not. So that's one area. I, I'm always, I've always been interested and still am around humans versus technology as if they're in battle. So when we say make the workplace more human, like you're like, okay, but I mean, humans are going to work. What do you mean? And what I think I'm seeing or interested in is the idea that say a QR code or that um, a email scheduling uh, timestamp to send an email tomorrow or an invitation that comes in to all people in the organization to join a meeting are all enabling technologies. But back to like the movie Social Dilemma or Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, make us aware of what we're giving our attention to and, and what we're noticing. And there's been a big move towards nature. And there's been 300% increase in sales of bikes in America. Vancouver has become the number one city for recreational biking in North America and almost up there number two or three for commuting. We need to balance out our time on the computer and on our phones with big ass trees and oceans. And as much as I've always loved nature, I forgot that that's a normalizing and equalizing thing that humans are wired for. And we're wanting more of it when we can't get the human connection that we're so accustomed to. So I guess my curiosity is how does that uh, transcend or how does that look five years out, 10 years out as COVID being a ripple effect or some chasm that switched the train track and allowed us this sort of welcoming of the human condition of the natural order of the world. Yeah, love that. I mean, yeah, I think it's so interesting to see what happens post COVID and, you know, just, yeah, what we discussed earlier, that kind of rapid digital transformation. What I find weird is that the technology has been here for years and yet no one could be bothered to like take action. And then, you know, something so devastating like the pandemics had to happen for all of a sudden the company, like the world to literally radically transform in a short period of time. I think it's insane. You know, like some of the most basic things, as I mentioned, like we're now you can order your food from your phone and it'll get delivered to you. Like crazy. Some of these things that would have been such a PR newsworthy type thing, you know, in, in pre COVID days is now like, it's because of hygiene, you know, it's insane. And I think looking at the future and what that means, you know, as you said, more of a focus on people's mental health, more of a focus on, you know, allowing people to be at home, you know, with their young families or be able to remote work and this flexi working and being in your flow. I think it's awesome that I, I hope all of this comes together and, you know, allows the humans, it's like this next generation of working, you know, crazy. Necessity is the mother of invention. 
Yeah, I think we haven't even touched on it, and we and we won't because this will be another another hour. <laughs> but it's like you know we're talk- talking about adults and work, but I mean, holy shit, do, does there need to be a revolution on uh, on education and school systems? I think it's going to be insane to see how that changes, and you just see how such archaic legacy systems that they're like exams and everything's built on. I mean, that in itself is just a whole piece that needs to to transform, which I think will be interesting to see how they do that. Um, because I think, you know, even with a focus on like STEM topics and things, you know, arguably, is that correct? Is it not? I mean, I, for one, have never used algebra since I was like 15. Um, so I think that's yeah. super interesting. Yes. We can go to education if you want, or we can steer clear. It's up to the navigator. Most people who have contemplated the changing nature of education have come across Ken Robinson and his talk, How Schools Kill Creativity, which I think is the most viewed TED Talk of all time. And the premise there, back to your point, is schools historically have designed out or hammered out the idiosyncrasies and the uniqueness and the creativity that's inherent in the child of like, no, you can't use that in the world of work. It has no utility. So basta, stop it. Now, uh, management consultancies like McKinsey or Ernst & Young are hiring for innovation and creativity skills, which are not MBA, Harvard, and Cornell and Yale graduates per se. Certainly those people are qualified, but so is um, a kid in India who's never gone to school and did his course on MIT, you know, online certificate. So all of that is beautiful. The worry is that when you democratize the elite institutions, they lose their cachet, they lose their currency, and now their business model falls apart. And Scott Galloway, who teaches at the Stern School in New York, has lots to say about why MBA should only be a year anyway. And they, they're only two years for um, an economic model. In addition to that is, I'm teaching at uh, the university here next uh, in January, and um, the revenue comes from international students who no longer need to fly to Vancouver to study. They can stay in Asia or wherever they're coming from in Europe or South America. This is all beautiful. So it's happening. It's just taking a long time. MOOCs and online platforms are always there. Uh, The fastest growing company in Western Canada is called Thinkific. It's an online education platform like Masterclass. So what we were talking about a little bit before in the break was in the School of Athens, in the uh, ability to have humble inquiry or discerning inquiry, you could follow your curiosity without having to commercialize it, monetize it, find utility for that skill or that domain. That's a luxury. Those, those people and even many people in the Western world are sitting pretty with the ability to study philosophy. I love that. That's great. I, I'm a big fan of that. I endorse that. In addition to, if, if you have the ability to, to having some hard skills and having some things that you can lean into, which people value, and that becomes this beautiful thing of ikigai, you know, which is doing what you love, what the world needs, what you can get paid for, and what you're great at. And there's a marriage of that that becomes like you couldn't be doing anything else. So if studying philosophy or psychology or sociology is going to help you get there. Amazing. If studying data science, 
UX design and engineering is going to help you get there. Awesome. And this is the marriage or the dance that passion and skills come together. You might be very skilled at sales, but you might be really passionate about opera singing. So does that mean you become an opera singer and have people laugh at you in the street when you're singing at Oxford Circus? Or do you get invited to the New York Symphony to sing in front of thousands of people? Do you sell Coles to Newcastle or Snow to an Eskimo because you're an amazing salesperson? Perhaps. Do you do both? These are, are the questions that we've been contemplating and Plato and Socrates were contemplating so long ago. So I'm excited about the future of education. I'm concerned that it's taken us this fucking long to get our shit together. Part of my French. I completely agree. I completely agree. Slashies. Am I right in saying it's your term of the polymath? Oh, that's a good one. Yes, that's accurate. If you Google someone like um, Louis Pasteur or Richard Branson or Ariana Huffington, you're going to find their Renaissance men and women, their polymaths. So I think there's a, an idea that there's a certain type of success or recognition in those fields. So a slashy, when I was writing about that, um, came to me in Asia when I met someone who was doing prenatal yoga, UX design, and had her own newsletter blog that she was monetizing. And like all of that was totally normal. So it wasn't about necessarily being the best blogger or the best UX designer or the best yoga instructor, but all of those brought her money and all of those she enjoyed. So perhaps if we had to tier it, uh, a polymath is a very successful slashy. Love it. Not to be confused with slushy. <laughs> Slushies are very good too. And brain freeze is also something I'm very accustomed or very uh, experienced with. So when we're talking about slashies and polymaths, I find it interesting from my own experience and discussions, a lot of these people I've noticed have lived in different countries, they've experienced different cultures, and a lot of the times on their resume, you know, whether they're a creative or, or, or whatever, you know, they've kind of held different types of roles across different verticals. Is that something that you've seen? And, and like, would it be fair to say that kind of is the formula of someone that's going to be a successful polymath? Or am I mistaken in that you can find someone that's like growing up in the same place the whole life be a polymath? Mm. I think you're mistaken, bro. I think it gives you a leg up and a, um, an ability to maybe get there quicker to have lived in many countries, studied many things, come from... Um, uh, uh, ethnically from different backgrounds, because then you have so many new and novel inputs that give you so much color and variety to your life. So it's a great foundation. And it often comes from a place of being fortunate, or perhaps just consequences, you're born into a family of like, French, Polynesian, Cuban, Canadian, Colombian parents and grandparents. And so there's like, you know, a lot of people I do know, who are highly creative and, and, and polymaths um, have always, have always been the other. And, you know, there's no one who embodies that more than Obama. So, so that's sort of, 
you know, that's a caveat. Yet, you can travel through books, you can travel through words, you can travel through films, and you can totally sit in front of your computer or just sit and meditate and do a journey within and get to a place where you're like, okay, I have to paint for my sanity. It's not about getting into the MoMA. Um, I have to write to think. It's not about getting into the New York Times bestseller list. Um, I have to make music because it's how I normalize and how I regulate myself. And then when, when those things come from an internal drive, I mean, we know it, you, you can feel it, you sense it, then it gets recognition when it's coming from, I want to be, be known as the person who came up with this font or, you know, like Milton Glazner, who's come up with uh, a bazillion posters and, and, um, um, advertising campaigns. He never did it for the recognition per se. He just did it because he loves solving problems with visual design. And then next thing you know, you got, I love New York mugs everywhere. So I think it's both. I think you can do it without having that uh, foundation. And I think you can um, be, you know, in one city and of a homogenous background, but it certainly helps to have a diversity of inputs and experiences to, to accelerate that journey. Awesome. And as we are entering a new year, 2021 is just on the horizon. For anyone listening to this podcast, what are some hacks or top tips from you that you would tell people to embrace come January? And don't say read the book, because that's obvious. Mm. I'm becoming less of a fan of the word hacks because we've gotten accustomed to quick downloads and quick fixes. Now, as much as that's true, there are some quick hacks you can do, like don't look at your phone first thing in the morning. Easy, don't have your phone be your alarm, have something else be an alarm so that you wake up and you don't look at your phone. Um, But beyond the hacks, I like the idea of practices and rituals. So what are the rituals, what are the practices that you can cultivate and you can integrate into your life. So back to our earlier conversation around nature equalizes us or normalizes us and biophilia as a practice or as a um, science creates space for productivity, focus, and more creativity. So getting plants and watering plants in your home office and in your office office, if you haven't, is a great way to start out the new year. Um, We've all culled and and cultivated support networks uh, over the last eight months, nine months, more so than ever. What does that look like to continue to invest in so that you can lean in on people and have straight talk and be vulnerable and grow much more than you could before and exponentially? And um, for me personally, I've lost my deep work practices where I'm very fractured. Uh, before I got on this call with you, if you had, <laughs> if you could have viewed what was going on, both as a viewer and observer, as well as go into my brain, um, I think you would have to do some like breath work or go for a long walk because it would be anxiety inducing. So how do we tame the busy mind, the busy body, and this impulse to be productive and do more when we know that what matters most is our health? 
And what matters most is our connections to friends and family. So that for me is how I answer that question. Um, but we did talk about coping mechanisms. And I think a lot of people have found different things that have worked for them that are relatively healthy. So whatever those are, hold on to them. You mentioned the Pomodoro technique in your book. Have you tried it? Does it work? Would you recommend it? Well, I just did the Pomodoro technique for 45 minutes with a friend in Tel Aviv. So we started our session. We kept the Zoom open. And then I lay down a soundtrack of some Latin sort of beats. And I got, well, I got 30 minutes in of the 45 minutes. And then I got distracted. Or maybe I got distracted in an in in between, but generally the idea of creating momentum and the feeling progress is part of the whole idea of doing that. And then the external metric of, did you ship those presentations? Did you convert those sales? Did you finish that project? Well, you kind of know if you did or didn't, but it's more of the internal thing that I'm concerned about of like, how do you feel after that 25 minutes or that hour? So uh, I continue to use it, but I'm conscious of how fragmented I am and trying to keep myself in check and in, in the lane. And that's where back to technology as an enabler. What is it that you're actually doing and what are the distractions that you've got around you that are just too easy, which is usually a flip of the phone and then you're on Instagram. Awesome. Well, sadly, that is the end of the episode now, but um, could you please share with the audience uh, kind of your website or social handles? What's the best way to, to, to see what you're doing and get in touch? Oh, sure. If you want to get in touch or learn more about me or read some of my stuff, you can go to jonasaltman.com. If you are interested in Instagram, as we said, you can go to at shapers.life. And the same for the website, shapers.life. And uh, I'm really excited about a program that a bunch of people that I've worked with and explored and helped me write the book um, are launching today, which is a program, eight-week program, peer coaching, reflection, introspection, building adaptability, and it's the Shape of Work program. And so that launches today and goes live where we start the first cohort on February 1st. Amazing. And I'll be sure to include those links in the show notes. But as always, Jonas, thank you so much. Uh, it's been fantastic to have you on for a second time. You're awesome. The book's awesome. And I hope we can share a bro hug in the not too distant future. Oh, yeah. We can do a bro fist pump hug dance. And I've loved uh, having such a candid and caring conversation. And I'm looking forward to being in a room with you next year. I'm hopeful. Amazing. Thank you so much and look forward to catching up soon. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast can intrigue, inspire, and provide some key tips and tricks for a lot of people. I would really appreciate your help to grow the community. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, then please send it their way. And if you can subscribe and leave a review, it would mean so much and it really supports the show. Thank you and see you next week.